Am I the only one who thinks this is totally insane? Rob, we're fighting theological injustice here. They're not using just weights and measures. He said we have 50 listeners. I think he's being generous. Rage Bible is interpreted by experts. Rob, are you as shocked as I am? It's nonsense. If you've given any money to this, you need to complain. You ask for your money back. I don't know about you, but I find this annoying. What up and shalom. Welcome to the Rob and Caleb show. My name is Caleb Hegg. With me, of course, are Rob Van Hoff. We should say the show where theology counts and scholarship matters. What up, Rob? How's it going, brother? Hey, I'm excited. I'm pumped too, man. Uh, for our listeners who might not know, I am on vacation this week and Rob is, uh, is, is enjoying a lovely day off. From the Rob and Caleb show. So this is an illusion. We are That's not right. here. <laughs> we are pre-recording. We have pre-recorded this episode for all of you. And the reason we've done that is because we have a very, very, very special guest that's going to be joining us here in just a very short moment. Um, and we've been talking about uh, Dr. Tilling's book. Dr. Uh, Chris Tilling will be joining us in just a second. Dr. Tilling has written uh, numerous things. I I'm not positive we can ask him about this. I think his focus is mainly on Christology and uh, perhaps maybe even more specific, Paul's Christology. Uh, That certainly is the theme of his 2012 book, which was just republished in 2015. We've talked about it many times on this show in the past two months. That is Paul's Divine Christology by Chris Tilling, Dr. Chris Tilling. I'm very excited to have Chris with us today, and uh, I'm just excited to kind of pick his brain. I actually was introduced to Dr. Tilling uh, through a different book. Um, yeah, but before that, we want to say uh, that uh, the Robin Caleb Show is brought to you by Torah Resource Radio and TorahResource.com. You can go to Torah Resource to find all sorts of great free stuff, and you can find uh, articles and videos and all sorts of stuff. Not only that, but I don't know if everybody knows this or not. Tor Resource is really just the bookstore for Tor Resource Institute. Tor Resource Institute is the school that uh, that trains leaders in biblical, uh, well, b- biblical topics in general. So, uh, if you want to go to school for biblical uh, for biblical things co- coming from a Torah perspective, then Tor Resource Institute might just be the place for you. Of course, at our programming desk, as always, is Gary Springer, and the person who's in charge of our chat room is Mark Randall. So a big thank you to those guys. Okay. Um, anything else that you want to bring up before before we uh, bring Dr. Tilling onto the air? No, I'm, I'm just excited for this interview. I've, I've had two, I, I chewed on his book for a week and then I put it down. That was a couple months ago. And then this last week uh, in advance of our interview, picked it back up and chewed on it some more, a bunch. So I, it's meat. It's meaty. Yeah, it's a, yeah, it's it, a meaty read. It yeah. is super heady, um, and and I shouldn't. I mean, if if you're used to scholarly books, then it's I. It's probably not as uh, as bad as you know as heavy as some might think. Uh, but you certainly need a good grasp of Greek. You need to know your uh, biblical Greek, yeah. and, and know and know it fairly well. He's interacting with some heavy hitters, scholars who've gone before him, and so he's a. I was thinking of him as a 
a brave soul to have pursued the particular yeah, uh, no inquiry on Christology and, and Paul um, because of this, the mass of scholarship that he had to engage with and, and resolve tensions between and come up, you know, what, what his argument is in light of all the people that have gone before. He didn't just come and say, this is the way it is. He's actually carefully critiquing uh, big-name scholars, Larry Hurtado, yeah. uh, you know, and, and uh, Richard Bauckham and others. Well, yeah, and, and uh, the amount of reading that he must have, the amount of research and uh, whatnot that he must have put into this book, I would say that the first, what, 75 pages uh, at least is, is not anything of his own, uh, his own stance. All he's doing for the first 75 pages of this book is setting up what other people have already done. Yeah, trying to clarify, and that is, that's really good method, right? You want to make sure you're representing other people's that you respect. You've benefited from their work, and what you're going to do is you're going to clarify their positions, compare and contrast maybe key themes between rival scholars, rival schools of thought. And then what he does, he sets the groundwork for how... You know, he sets the table for how he's going to present the main course, which is, which of course is his argument. Yeah, very good. Okay, well then, without further ado, so with us today is Dr. Chris Tilling. Dr. Tilling is a tutor, senior lecturer in New Testament studies at Saint Melitus College. He is also a visiting lecturer in theology at King's College London. Chris recently co-authored "How God Became Jesus." Uh, and with Michael Bird, Craig Evans, a personal friend of mine, si- uh, Simon Gothercole, and Charles Hill. He also is uh, also the editor of Beyond Old and New Perspectives on Paul. Chris's first book, the critically acclaimed Paul's Divine Christology, is now republished with multiple endorsements and a new forward by Erdman's. I'd like to thank Dr. Chris Tilling for being with us on The Robin Caleb Show. Thank you, Dr. K- Dr. Tilling. Real pleasure. Thank you so much for the invite, guys. Absolutely. Okay, so let's just dive right into this. I think Rob's first question, uh, you, do you want to pose the first question since it is, in fact, the question that you, you want, have, have come up with? <laughs> I, I would like to say, if, if, Chris, if you could talk a little bit about what drove you into, what, what passion kind of drove you into the, the mountains of academic Bible study, um, and then within that, how did you discover the, the thread of Pauline uh, scholarship that you wanted to engage with and, and overcome the intimidating um, <laughs> shelves and shelves of, of books that you had to uh, internalize in order to, to pursue that topic? Yeah, sure. Uh, well, um, to be honest, it's really the theme of Christology uh, that um, uh, that drove me into theology. Uh, I, I became a Christian in my late teens, uh, and I, I wasn't raised in a church-going family or anything of the kind, and so I didn't have any um, background knowledge of of the Bible. I I just I simply went along to a local Baptist church, um, simply because there were some pretty girls there, and didn't know. <laughs> how else to um, to get into all of this stuff apart from going along to the local library and I, I picked up some introductions to the Bibles and the one that I took home was written by a group and I remember I didn't, I didn't know anything about uh, different 
denominations and so on at this point. Uh, it was written by a group called the Christadelphians, and maybe you've come across those guys in the States. They're quite similar to the Jehovah Witnesses uh, when it comes to their understanding of the identity of Jesus. And in this little book, uh, they wax lyrical about how Jesus couldn't possibly be God, and all of these crazy Christians who think that he is are just, uh, it's just a, a great act of apostasy that they've embraced this lie, um, because Scripture clearly says that, that God, God cannot be tested, and it also says that Jesus was tempted in every way like us, and so therefore, you know, this is simple syllogism, therefore God cannot, uh, uh, Jesus cannot be God. And I must admit, at the time, this threw into great confusion, because everything I was hearing in the Baptist church suggested the opposite, that, that, that Jesus Christ is fully God and, and fully man. Um, and it, this was a, my first existential crisis in, in the faith. And so that's really what got me interested in this issue from the very beginning. And so in my own small way, I started engaging with this question um, uh, from those very early days, uh, reading some of the, the books that I found in the library that were useful. Um, but it really, really took off my interest in all of this when I went to St. Andrew's University to study theology. And at the time, Richard Balkan was there. And uh, I learned a tremendous amount from, from Richard, who I consider to be the most learned um, scholar of early Christianity alive. It was a great privilege to learn from him, um, and I'm very grateful for his friendship. Uh, so I learned an awful lot. That's what began it. You know, this whole issue of, of getting into um, scholarship and internalizing all of these books, it just... It just takes time, but it's not a superhuman effort. It really isn't. It's not as if there are a special few elite that can do this. Not at all. It just takes time. Mm -hmm. uh, I want to. I want to just for our audience. I want to uh, give people an idea of where you're coming from when it comes to the scriptures. Can you explain your view of the authority of scriptures? Do you believe in sola scriptura, or are you coming at the scriptures from a different point of view? Um, my understanding of the inspiration of scripture has certainly changed over the years. Um, I, I would hold a very high view of Scripture, uh, I, um, but my understanding of what that means may not be uh, um, the same as everybody else's. I, I, I endorse what I would call um, a relational ontology, and we can talk a little bit about that later on, and that also has an impact for how you understand the inspiration of Scripture as far as I'm concerned. Um, I think a high view of Scripture is one where we, we read it daily, where we memorize passages of Scripture, where we we meditate over these passages lovingly, believing that God is going to speak to us. Uh, that kind of posture, those practices, um, that's what a high view of Scripture looks like, um, in my view. Um, it doesn't mean, then, that there's some kind of generic notion of historicity that we need to attach to the various genres in the text. Um, uh, that can be a part of a high view of Scripture, but I don't think it's a necessary correlate. Uh, so, in other words, I, I would want to uh, um, speak very much of a, uh, of a Trinitarian approach to, approach to Scripture that endorses our uh, very solid and concrete practices. But as for the, the doctrine of inerrancy, for example, um, when understood in certain terms, I have difficulties with that particular word, um, although I understand it can be very helpful for others as well. I like to speak of the uh, inerrancy of Scripture as an exclamation of the praise towards God rather than necessarily something that I would impute into a scientific um, discourse. 
wonderful. Yes, and I, can I dovetail on that? <laughs> if just to push right into the, uh, Paul's divine Christology in terms of the Shema, because our our understanding of of the greatest commandment, um, as Jesus taught, of course, and the second like it, is relational. And if we go back and look at what is traditionally associated with uh, Jewish repetition of the Shema is the, um, and you shall speak of them, right? When you lie down, when you rise up. In other words, this, Absolutely. Uh, uh, yes. right? uh, the, these words that I command you today shall be on your heart, right? And yes. the idea is, is the center of our life in in this world that God has created is relational with the Creator, and, and that's what that's why we're so excited about the work you've done, um, and and then looking at how Paul uses the, uh, the Shema, as it in First Corinthians as a kind of uh, base. I would like you to if you could talk about Paul's use of the Shema, and maybe even if you could uh, touch a little bit on more theoretically the helpfulness or unhelpfulness of the term monotheism in in Second Temple Jewish world uh, as scholars trying to describe the faith of first century yeah, uh, yeah goodness like, okay so there's <laughs> that's, that's the whole and yeah. <laughs> oh, there's, there's a lot here and yeah I just realized as well in answering the previous uh, set of questions there's so much I left undiscussed so the scriptural authority some of that I'm I apologize um, there's so many interesting things we could get into in in all of that as well but if I were to um, zone in on the Shema which is, I think, fair enough to say the closest thing um, you have to a creed in, in Second Temple Judaism, the Judaism which out of which Paul writes. Uh, and um, I, I need to make this point again, but um, uh, I just I can see Caleb uh, on on the side there. You've got our how God became Jesus, and and in that little book, I I note that uh, it's a response to Bart Ehrman's book, How Jesus Became God. Um, and Bart Ehrman doesn't refer to the Shema once in his book, and he has a couple of chapters exploring um, aspects relating to Jewish monotheism, um, which I find astonishing, because if we want to talk about the oneness of God, if we want to talk about um, a monotheism in Second Temple Judaism, if that's the right term, then, then we have to make recourse to the Shema. And what we find there is an expression of the oneness of God, which is tied very much to the loving relational commitment of Israel to her God. Um, you cannot uh, separate the two. You do not have a discourse about God, God and his oneness in abstract terms, apart from what this means to resist idolatry and to love God with all of our being. Um, and so that's essentially, I think, the heart of, of um, Jewish monotheism that was contemporary to Paul. I mean, if it, it, the later rabbinic writings tell us that, that this was likely prayed twice a day uh, by, um, um, by Jews in the first century. And um, there was plenty of, you know, there was an awful lot more than just a couple of verses. Uh, but it's very likely that many uh, uh, Jews contemporary to Paul had memorized these passages and could repeat them off the top of their head. And again and again, we find in these passages and across uh, the scriptures of Israel, uh, this emphasis on relational commitment to God as constituting an exclamation of the oneness of God and God's supremacy over against the gods of the nations. Um, so I think that's, that's why the Shema is so useful. 
for us um, when we're engaging the New Testament, not only because Paul makes recourse to the Shema at various points, um, but also because it helps us in a nutshell grasp what is at the heart of Jewish monotheism that frames um, early Christianity. Now, as to the phrase monotheism, I mean, that is a toughie. Certainly, it can be misunderstood. Sorry, uh, that's uh, an email coming in. It can be misunderstood um, as, a, as a philosophical description of God, as God in the abstract. But um, that is already to make a, a massive uh, category mistake, a philosophical misstep that is completely out of tune with the scriptures of Israel. Um, if we understand, however, monotheism as an exclamation of the of the uniqueness of of the one God of Israel, um, which involves hmm. then this allegiance to the one God of Israel alone, then then it makes sense to me as a term. I'm happy to use it. I'm certainly the social, not the social ramifications. In other words, not idolatry means there's very practical things in my life that I'm going to do to not do those things and I'm going to do these kinds of things, right? That it's it's not this Absolutely. knowledge. It's not this knowledge. And you touch a little bit on this in Corinthians, the idea of was there a people privileging knowledge as some sort of uh, prime value, knowledge of of special insight or perspective um, apart from relational um, uh, understanding is the way I that's right yeah this this is where it comes to the fore uh, Paul explicitly engages I think with an intellectualization of knowledge um, this happens in these very interesting chapters in the middle of first uh, Corinthians 8 to 8 to 10 uh, and uh, what I think is going on there um, and some of the scholarship that I make um, I make reference in, in Paul's Divine Christology, of course, is that these guys were, were understanding theology as bare propositions, the sort of things that you can write down on a sheet of paper and leaves us unaffected. Uh, and, and in verse 4 of chapter 8, um, you hear a little bit about that. You know, there is no God but one, no idol in the world really exists. Now, in and of themselves, these may seem to be true statements. Certainly they need framing, certainly they need understanding appropriately, but they seem to be true. And Paul seems to respond to this by saying, you do not yet know as it is necessary to know. So he's not against knowledge, but there's a certain way of knowing. And, and that he elucidates quite um, covenantally. The language is beautiful in, in verse 3 of chapter 8, where he speaks of, uh, of loving God and being known by him as the kind of knowledge that constitutes true theology. In Galatians so, right, as well, in it's Galatians relation. he makes that comment, right? He says something of, uh, not rather that you know, but that you are known. Yes, so he, absolutely. He's, he's, he's wanting them to, to he's like force them out of that box. That yeah, absolutely, know. yeah. So yeah. I, I, can, can I go back for just a second? I want to I want to speak again to, to monotheism. Let's bring it down to maybe a more basic uh, basic level. If someone was to say to you, Doctor Tilling, um, uh, monotheism was a key part of Judaism in the first century. That is, that Paul would have never thought that that Jesus could be God or Jesus could be Yod Hey Vav Hey because of his high understanding of monotheism. How would you respond to someone who would say that uh, th this idea of Jesus being God would be totally and utterly foreign and even blasphemous to a, a Jew in the first century like Paul? 
Yeah, well, this is an argument that um, a couple of scholars have indeed uh, set forth in their own ways. Um, perhaps most infamously, Morris Casey, he, um, he argued, look, in the context of Second Temple Judaism, it would be impossible to speak of, of Jesus as God because this would be blasphemous. So it's only when the Christian community started to be uh, watered down when it comes to the Jewish uh, population by Gentile converts, um, and this is the Johannine community, that we can then uh, see the Christian um, Christian scriptures start to embrace the idea that Jesus is God. And so his book was called From Jewish Prophet to Gentile God. Um, so you can see um, how, how that worked out. Um, the problem with this particular perspective is that it doesn't really take seriously, it seems to me, um, A, the breadth of of Jewish uh, language when it comes to speaking of um, God. This isn't a mathematical formula, this oneness of God. It's, it's about this allegiance to the one God of Israel. Um, but it also doesn't take seriously the fact that Paul, as a Jew, was very happy to speak about Jesus as a way, in a way that um, Jews would only speak of God. In other words, what they've done is they've said that this is what Jews can and cannot do um, without looking at Paul. Uh, and that's not an inductive argument then. That's to actually thrust um, uh, um, uh, these later constructs back onto the texts and force them into shape, even though the texts themselves um, don't want to be put into that box. So in other words, we need to work more inductively with the notion of, of monotheism and, and allow the evidence to, to shape our, our definitions. One of the nice uh, treatments in your book is uh, it gets into this the symbol son of man in some of the second temple literature and that it it's not a fixed defined symbol but it's it's underdetermined in other words it has enough um, currency that different communities at different times can get mileage out of this term but yet using it in in distinct ways um, and then there's uh, in that discussion you talk about the, the imagery in different sections of the Enoch tradition and uh, different arguments that people have made with, is Jesus like Enoch? In other words, or if we were to compare these, and I really appreciate how you, uh, I think you made 16 different points <laughs> of discernment to show that, no, uh, we need to see Son of Man as a, and, and these other, I think Lord of Spirits is one of them, some of these other catch words not as fixedly fixed defin defined uh, concepts but had a lot of fluidity and um, uh, could you talk a little bit about that yeah well that was part of a rather cheeky thought experiment in Paul's divine Christology I was, I was being a little bit um, subversive with my method there and um, the point you see many people when they're engaging with Paul many PhDs are written uh, in the following way. There'll be extensive analysis of, let's say, a concept like humility or, or divinity or what, whatever else. And the, the, this term will then be pushed through all of the various texts that we have from Second Temple Judaism, including, of course, um, the Hebrew Bible, First Testament or Old Testament, whatever you want to call it, uh, Qumran texts, Philo, Josephus, so on and so forth, all of these, these uh, Jewish texts. And then and there will be a little chapter at the end which will engage with now what we've learnt. Now let's bring it all into Paul 
and, and see how it now will make sense. Now, I procedurally, this can make sense sometimes. Methodologically, I, I'm not opposed to it entirely. But the problem is, when we want to talk about the Apostle Paul, then we need to spend most of our time in the Apostle Paul's letters. Now, this may seem like a really um, obvious point to make, but it's one that is often not followed through. And this is classically the case in the Christology debates that have taken place. What people end up doing is mining the texts of Second Temple Judaism uh, for intermediary figures, for figures who look a little bit like God but also aren't God. And then they go to Paul's letters in order to try and join the dots. Um, I mean, Larry Hurtado does this as well to a certain extent. Uh, the problem with all of this is that we end up losing a sense of the pattern of language that is in Paul's own letters. And so what I'm doing um, in all of this is I'm using one of those texts that those scholars who tend to spend more time on Second Temple Jewish literature, apart from Paul's letters, I mean, um, uh, um, how they go about things. I'm critiquing how they go about things. Um, so William Horbury is... Uh, one example, Crispin Fletcher Louis, another. Um, what they will tend to do is they'll say, "Look, here's this figure, the Enochic son of man." Uh, it's a fascinating text, by the way, the similitudes of Enoch. I mean, it's an incredible text, and I highly recommend everyone read it. Uh, but but you get this figure, the son of man, who who's on a throne, um, looks like it's God's throne. The people pay obeisance to this son of man. In other words, there seems to be some kind of worship. Um, there's a sense in which this son of man is is exalted on the earth. Um, so, you know, obviously you can see there's there's parallels here with the way early Christians spoke about Jesus. Um, so this is one of the key texts used to to say, look, Paul's Christology. Jesus is is an awful lot like God, but he's not God because he, he parallels more this sort of intermediary figure, the son of man in, in the similitudes of Enoch. So what I do in this subversive move is I base my argument on that difficult text. I don't go to the, the whole Hebrew Bible, <laughs> which I could have done uh, in order to make my case. Now I go straight to the difficult one and I say, no, let's imagine that Paul only had this text in his hand when he was thinking about Jesus Christ. But... We're thinking first and foremost about the pattern of language in Paul's letters. Then when we go to see the similitudes of, en of Enoch, we see the parallel isn't between Paul's Jesus and the Son of Man, but Jesus seems to be parallel with the Lord of the Spirits in this text. And it's one reason perhaps why Paul backed away from using Son of Man language. Um, I mean, this is speculation. Um, I, I cannot um, give too much evidence. It's more about uh, the absence of evidence. But, do, you know, you, we know that Paul doesn't use this son of man title an, an awful lot, which is, which is rather interesting because it's so uh, prominent in, in the synoptic gospels. So why is it fallen out? Why, why is Paul not using it more? Is it because it's more of a, you know, an Aramaic speakers would have picked this up and Paul's Gentile audience wouldn't have understood it? I mean, that's entirely possible, uh, very likely. But it's also possible that Paul wanted to avoid any kind of association with the Enochic Son of Man, because then we would have ended up with a semi-divine Christ, not a fully divine Christ, which is something you find on almost every page of Paul's letters. So I, 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 I want to go back to probably what was going to be one of my first questions, and, and maybe you can set this up for our audience. Our audience has a wide range of, of uh, you know, people at different levels in terms of their study. 
So some people are going to pick this book up and just eat it up. Other people uh, are going to be lost. What, what, you know, it, it seems as though the book was written more for a scholarly world. Who was, who was the audience you were trying to, to hit and what was the motivation for the book itself? Um, well, it was certainly for the scholarly community. The argument is for the scholarly community, but I hope I've written in accessible enough language so that um, uh, the lay and, and others will be able to understand this, so long as they've got some kind of biblical literacy. But, look, the burden uh, it relates to, I told you earlier on, my biography of my first existential crisis in reading this book written by the Christadelphians who seem to suggest that Jesus isn't God. Um, I mean, this, this, this changed everything as far as I could see. If, if Jesus isn't God, then everything that Christians do and say has been wrong. Uh, it's, it's the foundation for all theological knowledge. This is the early church fathers understood this particularly clearly. Um, if Jesus isn't God, how is he our saviour? This was Athanasius's classic argument. Um, but in the early churches as well, as early back as Irenaeus, you, the, the idea is if, if Jesus isn't God, then we don't know even how to speak about God. Because speaking about God in the Christian sense is a response to the word of God. It's, it's God, God moves towards us in grace in Jesus Christ. And on that basis, we dare to speak about God, despite the fact that we are all more or less stupid sinners. Uh, theology our prayer, church life, mission, it's premised on God being revealed to us in Jesus Christ. So if we give up on the divinity of Jesus Christ, we might as well pack up our bags and, and go home, frankly, uh, because we don't have any theological legs to stand on, uh, quite literally. And so this seemed to me to be a massively important debate. And to my, to my shock, to my horror, I realised not everybody thought this back then in those early years of my Christian life. And the, the more I studied these matters, I realized that there were plenty of people who said, also Paul didn't think that Jesus was God. Now, certainly I think I can accept that there might be a plurality of different views in the New Testament on certain things. But, but Paul wrote an awful lot of the New Testament. Um, he made some of the most um, insightful uh, theological um, uh, uh, exclamations that w w ha still, you know, have, have influenced the church through its long history, shaped Augustine, um, of course the Reformation, the revivalist movements, and yeah, in, if we're going to back away from a an orthodox Paul on this, then, then we might be talking about a stack of cards falling down. And uh, uh, there were a number of scholars who said that, look, Paul's Jesus isn't fully God. I mentioned Maurice Casey earlier on, but also in his own way, Jimmy Dunn, who's a massively important scholar um, in, in the UK, who's done an awful lot of work on, on these issues. They're saying, look, maybe by John's gospel, we've got a divine Christology. That is to say that Jesus is on the divine side of the line. Monotheism must roll between God and creatures, but not before then. So for Paul's letters, we're on the way to speaking of Jesus as fully divine, but we're not there yet. And um, so my book was an attempt to, to say, well, hang on a minute, guys. I think it's really clear that Paul saw and spoke of Jesus in the way Israel could only speak of God. And so I elucidate that claim in Paul's divine Christology um, in a way that I hope um, anyone could understand. Well, that remains to be seen. 
Okay, so with that in mind, then, can let's say that you have the average Christian uh, who who comes and says, uh, you know, not a scholar. Um, how would you respond to the average Christian who says Paul did not believe in a divine Christology? I mean, can and I'm I think what I'm really trying to ask you is, can you put your entire argument, which is in obviously in book form, but can you put it into the five-minute conversation that you have with the average Christian who's saying, no, Paul didn't believe in a divine Christology? Sure, sure. I'll do my best. I'm, I'm guessing, though, in this imaginary conversation, after about a minute, their eyes will start to <laughs> over. <laughs> so we'll, we'll give it a go. Um, I, um, I think uh, a couple of questions need to be asked. What do we mean by... Uh, monotheism that's a key question which I seek to address in this because if we're going to say Jesus is or isn't God in Paul's letters we need to know what we mean by the word God and how that was conceptualized and then we need to look at evidence in Paul's letters whether Jesus is or isn't God simple really that's all I'm doing in the book um, but um, these are my results uh, monotheism for Paul is about the loving and committed relationship between God and his people. And if we go across the scriptures of Israel, then we see this pattern emerge. Uh, I, think, I think you'll find it pretty much um, everywhere that God is spoken of, um, uh, certainly in many often in, in, in abstract terms as the creator and as eternal and so on, but more often than not is spoken of in relation to Israel. Uh, and so God is, is the one who um, loves Israel who judges Israel, who chastises Israel, who is kind and gracious to Israel. And Israel responds to um, the one, their one God with utter devoted commitment. Um, uh, occasionally they, they turn around and embrace idolatry, of course, which is then seen as a capitulation um, um, from God. Uh, this, this God is is known in the realities of all of life. It isn't simply about worship in a cult, but uh, about how you treat your family, about uh, the things that you put on your wall, about the way you dress. It's about all of these things. Um, monotheism, in other words, Jewish faith in the one God encapsulates a life of commitment to the one God of Israel. And you find that across scriptures um, in various different ways. And this is the point. This is the crucial point. Uh, in no texts from Second Temple Judaism, do you find any other figure other than the God of Israel spoken of in these terms? Only the God of Israel is related to on these terms. You know, there isn't another figure, Metatron, the Son of Man, some angelic being, whether it's Michael or whoever else, there are no other intermediary figures that are related to on these terms. It's as simple as that. So that's what we have. That's Jewish monotheism. Um, what I then do is, is look at how Christ is related to um, Christians. And I, of course, anachronism, blah, blah. But how Paul is, uh, how the risen Lord is related to Christians in, in Paul's letters. And, and what you find is that exactly the same pattern emerges this, this risen Lord is, is the one to whom all allegiance is, is given over against idolatry in such a way that invades all of life and every single passion. So 
Philippians is such a beautifully rich text. And, and when a lot of people go to Philippians when they're talking about Christology, they'll go to the Philippians hymn in chapter 2. I make a methodological point. I don't do much work with that. That's my book, because I think divine Christology is is clear, if not clearer, in Philippians 1 and 3. So Philippians chapter 1, Paul says, look, it's better by far um, that I go to be with Jesus, but it's for your good that I'm going to stay. Uh, you, you know, He wants to be with Jesus, even if it means death. It's an astonishing thing to say. He lives to magnify Jesus Christ through his life. Um, Philippians chapter 3, he considers all things as rubbish that he may gain Christ, and, and he speaks of the knowledge of Christ in these terms, um, and so on and so forth. And I, I go through all of the evidence across Paul's letters, and it's almost every single chapter of everything Paul wrote will reflect this relationship between um, the risen Lord and Christians. So I join dots. I say, well, there's, there is only one analogy to the Christian's relationship with the risen Lord, and that is the relationship between Israel and her God. And now there's one final move in my argument. I also point out that Paul's theology, and we touched on this at the beginning, it isn't just about propositions on a sheet of paper. It is about a life lived. True theology is relational um, about your commitments. This is where we spoke earlier on about 1 Corinthians 8 to 10. So when we are talking about the relationship between the risen Lord and believers, we are doing theology on Paul's terms. This is a very Jewish way of doing theology. And the end result, it seems to be an unavoidable conclusion then, is that Paul's Christ is fully God. And this is a very Jewish way of making that case, because Christ is related to in the ways Israel only related to the one God of Israel. And precisely on those terms, and by using that language as well, that's the argument in a nutshell. Does that make sense? It makes perfect sense. I have another question, but Rob, you are you are you jonesing to ask something? No, go ahead. Okay, go ahead, so yeah. so then uh, with this idea, with the same idea in mind, uh, the hypothetical uh, person who says, uh, "Okay, well, yeah, Paul might have a couple of of these passages. You know, your First Corinthians eight through ten, or your uh, Philippians two, or." Or whatever, but those are just a couple of places, and we can we can sidestep these these places if we use a a, a horrible hermeneutic. Uh, you know, if we use a, a different hermeneutic than you're using, then we can sidestep these. How would you respond? Do you think that uh, you know? I, I think I already know this, but can you talk about how uh, Paul's and you use these terms in your book? You use Christ relation, God relation, uh, and and this is what you've just summed up for us. So, can you talk about how? Paul, Paul's Christol his divine Christology basically saturates all of his work. Do you think it saturates all of his work? Or do you, th do you think that it's just in certain little passages here and there? Yeah, I think this is one of the strengths of, of my argument, if I may say, um, is that um, uh, I think I, I noted in one of the later chapters, um, what chapters of Paul's letters do I not exegete in Paul's divine Christology? And there's just a couple. There's just a few, I think. I, I might be three or four. Apart from that, you could pretty much pluck any chapter from Paul's letters off the top of your head. And I have shown how the Christ relation as the God relation manifests in that chapter. In other words, there's a whole load of evidence for this view. Um, it cannot, cannot simply be dismissed on the basis of, well, here's a couple of cheeky passages that, that are for your, for your argument. But actually, there's 
there's an equal number of verses against your position, um, and that's categorically not the case. Um, it's um, uh, I think if if we're going to read Paul right, uh, and it's something I say to my students, then um, Christ is the heartbeat of Paul's letters, uh, and it's this Christ that we see as the heartbeat of Paul's letters through almost everything that he writes. Christ understood in the way Jews only understood uh, their relation to God. Mm-hmm. Okay. Give me just a second here. I'm reading some. We've gone all over the place, so my, my notes have kind of been thrown out the window, which is good. I, I, I really like that. Um, so can you talk for a few seconds uh, from your viewpoint, how does the divinity of Christ and true saving faith intersect? Is is there any any intersection there at all? Um, <clears throat> yeah, I mean, there's so much that can be unpacked in that question. Um, you know, <laughs> I, what is, I worded it like that on purpose. <laughs> yeah, it's um, the, the nature of saving faith, and and it's. Um, uh, I think it's. If I'm understanding the question right, it's, you know, is the full divinity of Jesus Christ necessary for faith to be saving? Is is that how you're... That's how I originally uh, wrote the question, but I didn't want to hit you with a question that uh, I didn't want to ask. I didn't want you to feel like I was asking you if, uh, you know, how someone is saved necessarily. So I, so I worded it differently. However, that is essentially the, the core of my question. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> yeah. This takes us into some uh, a lot of thorny issues. Um, the relationship between faith and justification um, is is a classic one, and I and I we've discussed some of that in Beyond Old and New Perspectives on Paul. Um, I think it's very important that we back we back away from contractual notions of faith. You know, we, uh, if we believe, then we are saved kind of logic. Um, I don't think that quite hits the nail on the head with Paul. Uh, but um, um, what we do get is this unconditioned movement of God to us in Jesus Christ and by the Spirit. Um, and in this movement, in this act, God terminates an old and enslaved Adamic existence on the cross and then in resurrection power from the dead new creation is unleashed and we are included into that by the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, this is Romans 5, 6, 7 and so on. Um, so that we also participate in this victory of God in Jesus Christ and by the Spirit over the powers of sin and death. Um, and this this is this is a word of liberation and salvation because quite frankly, and um, this beautiful verse, one of my favorites in the Bible from <laughs> Romans 5, that God demonstrates his own love for us in this while we were still sinners christ died for us we get this strange the revelation of god's love is in christ and his death on the cross and so um i think it's um in order to be faithful to paul um the the two very much intersect and cannot be separated um but i want to talk about so much more here um the, the way faith functions for paul um, and, um, and how that relates to the faithfulness of Christ as well, as well as the, the divinity of Jesus. But if we're not just being, if we're not just talking about Paul here, and we're talking about um, orthodoxy generally, 
um, then it's it's I think um, uh, incumbent on all who call Jesus Christ Lord um, to speak of Christ as um, homo usios with the Father, of one being with the Father. Because if we don't, then Jesus doesn't save us and we're engaging in useless idolatry in worshipping a creature rather than the creator. This is all Athanasius, you know. Um, so we could go anywhere in church history to make this case, I think. Mm-hmm. All right, Rob, any uh, any further Just questions? I, well, I have so, so much marked up in, in, in the Divine Christology book, but I would like to just uh, quote from one of your fat, one of the final comments here, page 272. Paul's Christology cannot be expressed apart from the communal life of the Church in relation to the risen Lord, to its faithfulness to Christ over the idolatry of the world. It's such an... I, I really like how you capture that, and you continue. Paul's Christology is thus, in its warp and woof, about the way the church lives, loves, and relates as a community with each other and with its risen Lord. And, and um, in this kind of recap of tying all your argument together, you bring it back to what is driving Paul in these letters. When, whether this is a, a, a local community he's lived and, and spent time with. You know, in Corinth, maybe he was, what, a year and a half, 18 months, I think, at one point in Corinth. Um, or perhaps a community in the Epistle to the Romans that he hadn't yet visited. There's still a, a, a passion, and I, I really like how you, you highlight, like, the Philippians 1 and 3, you know, uh, as they seem to get marginalized when people zero in on, on the hymn there in chapter 2. And to say, look at uh, the the fact of of the resurrection, the fact of of Jesus' life and activity right now among His people is the primary orientation that we, we if we if it becomes an intellectual exercise, if it becomes these propositions, we are um, shifting into maybe a mode of of being that, that could be dangerous in that we think maybe we're, we imagine ourselves to be something, <laughs> right, that he may, uh, when we are not. Uh, or, and like he says, you know, knowledge puffs up. That Paul wants, it's not that knowledge is, has no value, but it is contextualized within love. And I think one of the, the prayers that Paul gives is it in, uh, maybe it's in Ephesians. So that he prays first that your love would abound, and then he puts knowledge and wisdom inside of that main uh, uh, prayer request. In other words, that that, and of course we go back to Jesus, the main commandment, the Shema, right? Uh, and then love your neighbor. That this relational, living commitment, and kind of the, you know with the impact of a liturgical life, right? That that that. These words are, we abide in, in these words, we speak of these words with each other in community, and it's, once someone like a Bart Ehrman or someone who, who doesn't have, they might have amazing intellectual powers and must, you know, understand Greek, you know, you know I, I'm thinking of later in 1 Corinthians now, <laughs> you know, I have all this knowledge, but I have not love, then I become what what gain is it ultimately? And and yeah. I I see your arguments at least now I haven't read all your work, Chris, but this book is my interaction 
primarily with your thought, is uh, really drawing the reader back to that orientation of the, you're emphasizing that relational element and not devaluing the intellectual, but mm. putting it in its place. Yeah, you've rightly understood me that. I wouldn't want to say, for example, that propositions don't matter. Uh, you know, that propositions don't have a place in theology. Of course they do. I've just made a load of propositions uh, in order to make the case. And um, anyone who would say that propositions aren't important for theology are self-destructing because they've just used a proposition to, to claim that propositions don't matter. Um, but it's how they're understood. And what I'm doing in the final chapter there is, is trying to break a dichotomy between describing Paul then and our existence now as if we live in two very different worlds and his Jesus isn't necessarily our Jesus and so on and so forth. Because if we follow Paul's argument through um, that, that theological truth is bound up with our, um, our love and our lives and our relationships, um, then his Christology invades our lives as well. Um, so I'm just trying to break the now and the then um, dichotomy here. But it also puts knowledge and theological knowledge not simply into the world of academia, uh, the world of, of making sure that we are right about everything. Now, I'm a theologian. I want to be right about things when it comes to theology. But it, in, in Paul's terms, it will be hopelessly naive to think that we are sound if we simply assent to the set the right propositions. Rather, knowledge is it's included in our lives. It's part of a fight. It, it's part of struggles to, to stay committed to Jesus Christ over against the idolatries that try to draw us away. You know, theology is about the warp and woof of our lives, um, which is why what you guys are doing matters so much for the health of the church. It isn't just about being right. It is about the church's future as a sound and healthy body as it missions goes out in mission um, to the world. Chris, have you happened to read uh, Peter N's book, uh, The Sin of Certainty, yet? <laughs> I've, I've um, funnily enough, I, I've got it here somewhere. I mean, Pete... He, he, um, he gets it, just to recap on your point there, I, I hear in terms of faith, he, he, he talks about how do we understand pistis, right? Is yeah. it? There you go. There you go. <laughs> the idea of that we have to trust God with with the unknowns and not try to turn knowledge into an idolatrous uh, affair. And I'm hearing hints of not that 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 your arguments, you know, that's neither here nor there. But just some of this this big lesson that I'm hearing from you as well is is uh, knowledge has a place and it is good for scholars to to show uh, Christian uh, uh, love in, like a classic could be like the arguments between Piper and Wright on uh, justification, where you two, two seasoned uh, Christian men interacting in a rigorous, rigorous uh, debate about how to understand primary sources, how to understand the, the righteousness of God, but yet uh, doing so to where um, it is still, you can, you know, at least I feel that when I'm reading those arguments between, back and forth, um, the knowledge has not become an idol. Um, mm. there, there's still a, a relational element, but that doesn't mean we're going to back away from, from pursuing a, a sharp thinking. And, and could you speak a little bit about that in general terms, uh, obligation within the, the place of education 
theological education in the body of Christ generally and um, the, the, what, do, what do Christian scholars do when they disagree um, sharply about, about things that they feel are very important? Yeah, the, I think um, what you're talking about there is the kind of theological knowledge, and I haven't read, um, I've only read a few chapters of Pete's book, so I can't, I can't honestly say um, um, whether this resonates with what he's doing or not, but um, uh, what you're doing there is you're talking about knowledge as part of the Christian life, uh, as the, the renewal of the mind. You know, this is part of sanctification. It's a part of what the gospel is all about. It's a part of our rejection of our own idolatries. Um, it's an absolutely crucial part of, of Christian life. It's, it's about devotion to the one God. It's about rejection of idolatry. Uh, I think of um, that classic scene in, in the synoptics when uh, Jesus... Um, you know, asks you, who do people say I am? And, and Peter responds and says, you know, you're the Christ, son of the living God. And um, and then, so Jesus then goes on to talk about his coming suffering uh, and he's going to be handed over and so on and so forth. And, um, of course, Peter uh, responds by saying, surely not. You know, surely not. This is not going to happen. Because he has an, a construct, an academic, intellectual, uh, academic, maybe not, but you know what I mean, intellectual concept, that this is not what happens to the Messiah. Um, and so Jesus responds in some rather for, in a rather forthright way. What Peter has done, you see, he's moved from a human construct about the way the Messiah should be and projected that onto Jesus Christ. And that is, uh, that is to give space to demons. You know, this is, I mean, this is really crass language, I know, but this no, is, it's get behind me, Satan, you know, Jesus says. Um, so this, this is a temptation for Christians too, when we start projecting our idle notions onto God and not allowing our own minds and imaginations to be evangelized, uh, that we repent of our idolatry and our, uh, our tendency um, uh, to, um, uh, to the worst kind of idolatry, the kind of Satanism that actually robs people of, of life. Theology matters for this reason. It is about our, our health and our lives as a Christian. I mean, classically, one way that we do this um, is in projecting notions of who we think God should be onto God and living in, in that light. Uh, we all do it, actually. It's something we all need to be very careful of. Uh, but um, many of us uh, in the church as well will tend to think of God as this, as this rather aloof, stern figure who's just ready to bash sinners and, 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 you know, this is, this is how God works. And so we relate to God in this way. I mean, this is a, a silly little story, but um, a confession time. Um, I, I know none of you are Catholics, so you're not going to be able to absolve me of this one. Uh, <laughs> but um, I, at university in St. Andrews, I, um, I once was driving along the street and um, I just, it just came into my head. I saw this little man walking along the side of the road and there's a huge puddle right next to him. And as I was driving on, I thought, I'm going to get you. And, <laughs> and I, I, this wasn't a drive-by baptism. This was just me being a little bit naughty. And um, I will never forget how he was waving his fist. And, and, and 
I got back to the, my my um, dorm and and I was oh I'm so sorry Lord that was that was bad and you know all the rest of it and um, but for years afterwards then listen this is this is how these incohate subtle theologies influence the way we live and think and feel for years afterwards when I was walking along the street and I was near a puddle I would think oh boy God. <laughs> It's going to get Lightning's going to strike. <laughs> yeah, you reap what you sow. So I thought, okay, so this was the first thing. Now, after all of these years, despite the fact that I asked God's forgiveness for that particular activity, I thought, God is going to zap me with a puddle through somebody. And this is the added layer of nuttiness that then went on top of it. I thought, okay, I'm going to walk fast past that puddle <laughs> so that God isn't going to get me. You know, it's just it's madness. So I was thinking, okay... Uh, but God might have snuck a car around the corner ready to get me, but I'm going to rush so that, sorry, God, I, you tried your best, but I managed to get out of the way of the coming judgment that you had for me. Now, all of that is theology, right? right, it, right. It's all there in some kind of bizarre and twisted way. It affected the way I behaved in the, you know, the way I walked and so on. And, and good theology is about making sure that that our theological imaginations are evangelized that we are we are brought in line with the activity of God who meets us in Jesus Christ and by the power of the spirit to have this trinitarian framework for our theological imagination is so crucial for healthy living and loving if we miss if we miss this then then we're only going to end up hurting ourselves and others i think i have one final question for you i know that we're uh, we're pushing time limits now um, but I got one, and maybe this is more of an observation than anything. I was introduced to your work through the book, uh, How God Became Jesus, The Real Origins of Belief in Jesus' Divine Nature. And this is a response to Bart Ehrman's book, How Jesus Became God. In chapter 7, you have a chapter, chapter 7, you actually wrote two chapters in this. And uh, I, th I think you mentioned your Twitter account in this book, and I remember very vividly reading this and seeing that you mentioned Twitter, and the first thing I did was pull out my phone and found you on Twitter and started following you. It's been wonderful because I uh, I enjoy chess as well, and Doctor <laughs> Doctor Tilling loves to uh, to post see, good see chess. Behind me, yes, yeah. <laughs> exactly. He loves to post good chess uh, chess videos on his on his Twitter account as well as good theology. Um, but you're, you're, the seventh chapter of this book, misreading Paul's Christology, problems with Ehrman's exegesis. Is it fair to say, and I apologize if this is maybe a, uh, a misrepresentation, is it fair to say that this, I mean, this book in general seems to be written more for the layperson as opposed to the scholar, which your other book, Paul's Divine Christology, is obviously written for probably more of a scholarly world. And it seems to me, if I remember correctly, and it's been two years since I read this chapter, but if I remember correctly, this chapter, chapter seven, is essentially Paul's Divine Christology summed up into a shorter kind of uh, uh, concise package. Is that, uh, is that, am I representing that correctly or, or am I off base? Well, if it's been two years since you read it, I'm afraid it's been even longer than since I wrote it. Uh, um, I'm, I think I, I cover a lot of the issues there for sure, um, but there's a few things that I miss out. Um, in particular, I don't engage in that chapter, if I remember rightly, with the work I do with key Second Temple literature. Correct. Um, yes, you don't. of Enoch, Sirach, and such like, the life of Adam and Eve, 
um, which is this, this little subversive little game thought experiment I play. I, I don't get into that at all. And that's quite a crucial part of my my argument. And of course, there isn't the scholarly um, uh, positioning of my argument. Um, it's assuming a debate. So in some ways, how God became Jesus means that you need to you need to understand more of the argument um, off the bat than you do when reading Paul's Divine Christology. I explain, um, in other words, in Paul's Divine Christology a little bit more why this argument makes sense and why it needs to be said. Um, so there's a sense in which it summarizes what I do, um, but also a sense in which um, Paul's Divine Christology um, is maybe easier for those who don't know much about the debates. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, that's all I got. Rob, any uh, final final words or thoughts before just we Just thinking get going? in terms of relational versus the, the, the allure of knowledge. Back to the scene in the garden, you know, where the Lord blesses Adam and Eve with all this is yours. Uh, this one thing over here, you know, don't eat. No, but all this is yours, right? The first thing is all, is all the blessing is, is outlined in this one thing. But where attention goes to that one thing, right, that, uh, uh, that we read about. And uh, it's all downhill from there is a, a, a pers- knowledge, the allure of something uh, that becomes a rejection of the true God for some substitute that somehow uh, seems to be a, a constituent or a, a base part of, of our sinful nature that, that uh, you... you mentioned so well earlier that we all need to be vigilant and and watchful right as jesus says you know with that we that because temptation um to to seek satisfaction or uh some sort of uh resolution elsewhere in something that is not god is mm. uh, is what has infiltrated humanity Right. And and so I, I'm so uh, uh, encouraged by just, you know, reminding us of, of the passage between Yeshua and, and Peter on that very uh, idea that that was a, a to say it's a satanic kind of thought is like to, to have this knowledge that I'm going to privilege over the living. You know, Jesus is right here in the flesh and I'm going to uh, in in my ignorance exalt a concept rather than relate um, and yeah absolutely I mean you're, you're I mean this is a temptation I think also for Christians isn't it you know this um, the the idea that we can add to Jesus Christ uh, in order to make salvation um, effective uh, this this I think is what is going on in Galatians you know Paul Paul in that I mean this I won't get into all of it now of course but in Galatians, Paul, as a Jewish Christian, is engaging with another Jewish Christian who thinks that it's Jesus and as the way for salvation. In this case, it's uh, Jesus and Torah as salvific. Um, and, um, and Paul is, is absolutely stringent. In fact, he's furious in this letter uh, that they've got it wrong. They're betraying the gospel at this point. No, it's Jesus alone who who saves Jesus alone. And, and I think um, that frees us up, guys, to not take ourselves so seriously, to revel in the kindness and goodness of God, 
to us in Jesus Christ and fully because Jesus is God. Anything else would lead us to idolatry. All of this intertwines, doesn't it? Um, yeah, absolutely. I think you, you expressed it beautifully. Wonderful. Okay, the book is Paul's Divine Christology by Dr. Chris Tilling. Dr. Tilling, thank you so, so much for spending time with us today. We appreciate you taking the time out of your busy schedule. For our listeners, you can uh, follow Dr. Tilling on Twitter, which he has a wonderful Twitter account, which is fun to follow. I uh, find joy in it every time he posts. Uh, you can also uh, read plenty of his writings. Uh, he has also authored How God Became Jesus, helped co-author with uh, some magnificent scholars. Michael Bird is in there, Craig Evans. I mean, you just it's a dynamite lineup uh, in this book as well. So thank you once again, Dr. Tilling, for being with us. Thank you. And I also want to mention there's a free essay online um, that I wrote for the Pacific Baptist Journal. I've got that wrong already. Oh, dear. Uh, <laughs> But it's about Paul and the Trinity, and I make the case that Paul is Trinitarian. Awesome. I haven't read that yet, but that's what I'm going to do as soon as we uh, find it get off the line it. with you. <laughs> yeah. yeah. All right. Well, we hope that uh, for our listeners, this uh, conversation, this interview with Dr. Tilling has not only uh, enhanced uh, your understanding and lifted you up, but also that it has glorified our great God and Savior, Yeshua, the Messiah. <laughs>